Well, we just prayed a prayer, and now we're going to talk about it. Um, Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. From Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 to 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. By the way, a quick note, the ESV translation leaves out, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Apparently that was present in a minority of manuscripts and may not have been present in the original text, and we're not going to dwell on that. Uh, It's certainly a fine ending to the prayer, but it doesn't change anything about the content of the prayer or its meaning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my desire is not to try to say everything there is to say about prayer or even about this particular prayer, but to help us to increase our understanding about how we should pray and so to practically encourage your people to pray with confidence. Lord, indeed, please teach us to pray. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and help us to grow and mature in our faith and in prayer. For we pray in the name of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was a young Christian, which was a little after the Stone Age of Neil Barham's youth, um, maybe the Bronze Age, when uh, we Gen Xers were drinking water from garden hoses, eating cold spam from a can, swimming in ditches during rainstorms, and shooting each other in the pants with BB guns, that's Gen X, in those days we were taught to have something called a quiet time or a time of personal prayer. And we were also taught some methods for having a quiet time. And many of you will, will have gone through this. One of them was a simple little acronym called ACTS. And that stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Adoration meaning we start off our prayers by expressing love to God. Then we confess our sins. Then we give thanks to God for things he's done for us or given to us. And then supplication means asking God for things. And this is a fine way to start out learning how to have a prayer time, but it's only as good as far as it helps us learn to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Uh, This little method does teach some of the key elements of the Lord's Prayer, and that's why it's not a terrible place to start. But what troubles me about it now at this point in my life, just a little bit, is that we already have in the Lord's Prayer an excellent model given to us by Jesus. It's really very simple, but it also contains some important elements that 
simplifications lack. And ultimately, it's really an all-sufficient model upon which to base all our prayers. So I prefer now to use and teach the Lord's Prayer over any simplified method of organizing prayers. Now, when the Son of God teaches how we should pray, we should carefully take note. I think it would be safe to say that Jesus, the Son of God, would be the best prayer who ever walked the earth, if such a thing could be measured. Prayer is a topic that comes up frequently in Jesus' teachings as they're recorded for us in the Bible. Some variations of the word prayer appear over 150 times in the New Testament. About one-third of those are in the Gospels. It's a major emphasis of Jesus' teachings. And here we have what is presented to us as a model prayer right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord's Prayer is for us one of the most essential teachings on one of the most essential topics for all of life for the Christian. And Matthew is not the only place this teaching is recorded. There's a very similar prayer recorded for us in Luke chapter 11. And we're going to look briefly there for a couple of insights. And I'll just say the reason I'm preaching this prayer is that the Lord's Prayer became very, very deeply dear to me during the pandemic. Um, it... Um, was uh, one of the things that gave me the most hope uh, to live by. The passage in Luke 11 begins, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say. And there are a few differences to notice between this passage and the one in Matthew 6. Uh, the first is the situation that prompted the teaching. In Matthew, Jesus includes this teaching on prayer as part of a sermon aimed at introducing the basic principles of the kingdom of heaven to the people. In other words, in Matthew, Jesus chose prayer as a priority to teach the people, whether they knew they needed to hear it or not, as part of a teaching, uh, teaching them about the kingdom of heaven and how to live, or especially how our hearts should be oriented as citizens in it. But on the occasion recorded in Luke 11, the disciples heard Jesus praying, and that prompted them to ask him to teach them how to pray. And there's a mini lesson here that we can learn to become better prayers by listening to and emulating the prayers of people who really know how to pray. And so imagine the disciples listening to the Son of God pray to his Father and what that sounded like to their ears the intimacy, the confidence, the faith of his prayers, something about Jesus' prayer moved them to ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And in response, Jesus taught them something very similar to what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the model prayer in Luke 11 that we're not going to spend time going through as much is similar to the one in Matthew 6, but it's a bit shorter. And then in Luke, Jesus follows it up with teachings emphasizing the need for persistence in prayer and also confidence in prayer. And I would say, parenthetically, these differences give us a little window into how Jesus, as any good teacher would do, might have used some of the same teachings repeatedly, but with a little different emphasis or application at different times. And there's one more difference I want to point out between Matthew 6 and Luke 11, the prayers. It's this phrase right here. Um, the difference between when you pray, say, as in Luke 11, and pray then like this in Matthew 6. Pray like this, 
or pray in this way or pray in this manner or maybe use this pattern implies a form to use, not necessarily a prescription for the exact words. Uh, Whereas the phrase in Luke, when you pray, say, suggests instead to actually use the very words given. And these two slightly different instructions uh, suggest that both types of uses can be appropriate. Uh, We can use the Lord's Prayer as a model for us to form our own prayers, and at times we can use the very words as we did this morning. Both are good and helpful ways to use it. Now, the Westminster Larger Catechism devotes the last 19 questions to prayer, and that's numbers 178 to 196. And the last 11 from 186 to 196 are dedicated to teaching about the Lord's Prayer. And this point about the use of the Lord's Prayer is addressed in question 187. How should we use the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer not only directs us as a model for our other prayers, but may also be used as a prayer itself that will promote our understanding, faith, reverence, and the other gifts of God in us that are necessary for us to pray properly. And you see the two references. Also, since I brought up and used the larger catechism, I wanted to start uh, the rest with this helpful definition of prayer from question 178. What is prayer? Prayer is offering our desires to God in the name of Christ with the help of His Spirit, confessing our sins and thankfully recognizing His mercies. And that's a good starting point and definition of of what prayer is. So prayer is a specific activity of communication with God that we are not only admonished in the Scriptures to do, But in some ways, it is simply assumed that we will do it when you pray, along with rich teaching on how to do it. So now let's turn our attention back to Matthew chapter 6 and begin to work our way through this teaching of Jesus about prayer. Um, I was just thinking when when Neil... um, Barham texted me earlier this week asking if I needed any resources and I said I was preaching on the Lord's Prayer. He texted me back in caps, uh, the whole thing. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so I think there are um, certainly parts on the Lord's Prayer that you could spend um, weeks, if not potentially years on. And so this is um, a basic exposition of the meaning of the Lord's Prayer that was helpful to me. Matthew 6, 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Here Jesus is emphasizing private prayer, which is only seen by God He's critiquing the practice of some who at uh, set times of prayer in the morning, afternoon, and evening, religious Jews, would pray loudly for others to take notice of their piety. They would stop wherever they were and, and do this. They would do this intentionally so that others would notice what they were doing so that they would think of them as good and religious people. And Jesus says to them, if you're doing it for attention from people, then attention from people is the only reward you're going to get. Now, since we know that Jesus prayed with others and in the hearing of others, we know this teaching doesn't mean we can't pray together with others. 
Uh, but Jesus here tells us that private prayer is important and necessary and that in order for it to avoid it becoming something we do for appearances, it should be actually private. And what a person does in private is often the best reflection of what's really in, in our souls uh, since it's natural for us to think um, without even thinking that no one sees what we do in private and yet private prayer flies in the face of that thought and says what happens in private is seen by the most important person of all, God. And ultimately, private prayer separates us from the world because it's at its heart communication with an unseen God. If there is no God or if he doesn't hear us, it's the most useless thing possible. But if there is a God and he promises to hear us and he promises to act on our prayers, then it becomes one of the most valuable activities of all. In Matthew 6, 7, and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And it struck me just this morning uh, that Jesus has criticized the prayer practices of both, both the Jewish religious people of their day and now also the practices of religious pagans of the day. He turned his critique to both both directions. This one is an exhortation to avoid mindless repetition of a prayer where we might hope to get God's attention because we've said the right words and said them enough times. Jesus was specifically warning against a Gentile practice of repeating a God's name or some chant over and over again. Uh, For example, in 1 Kings 18... When Elijah was challenging the priests of Baal, and they chanted, Oh, Baal, answer us for hours, trying to get Baal's attention. As you can imagine, even misusing the Lord's Prayer itself in this way by just repeating it over and over again, maybe mystically thinking that the words would have more power by repeating them. And this is what Jesus says Your Father is listening from your first word. You aren't giving him information he lacks. And you don't have to work hard to get his attention. He's listening and he already knows. And so there's nothing about the external performance of our prayer that will make God pay more attention to it. Uh, Not eloquence, not repetition of words, not loudness, nothing at all. And so this simplest stammering prayer that is expressed to God in hope and in faith is what God delights in. Jesus reminds us that prayer is not informing God of our needs as if he didn't already know them. Rather, we, if we start off knowing that God knows our needs and wants to meet them, then prayer becomes an expression of trust in God for his love and care for us, for his goodness, and for his power and ability to act. So... We move on into the prayer, and uh, what I've titled here is the first request really includes um, an introduction and a first request. Matthew 6, 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And every word in this uh, part is rich and full of meaning, so we're going to take this line almost one word at a time. And the first word is, is our Um, From the first word in this prayer, our connection 
to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is emphasized. And this encourages us to remember that we're part of a community and helps us to be mindful to pray both with our brothers and sisters and for our brothers and sisters in the church. Our Father. And it's an amazing thing that we can call the creator of the universe, our Father. If you haven't reached a place in your life where you really and truly think of God as your Father, as your personal loving Father, then you're missing out on something intended to be a great blessing of peace and comfort for you. Uh, One verse in my early Christian life that brought home the truth of God's fatherhood to me is Psalm 65, 5, where he calls himself Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So even the most lonely and vulnerable people can rely on God in this way. Now, we have a problem, potentially, thinking about God as Father. Maybe your earthly father isn't all he should be. Maybe he's absent, or maybe he's distant, or maybe you don't even know him. Or maybe, on the other hand, you're fortunate to have a pretty good human father. Uh, Whatever your earthly father is to you, your heavenly father is so much more. He is perfect, and we can trust him. You can know that no matter what things look like, he has never failed to make good on his promises, unlike me. And he will never fail. He's better than any human father has ever been. But to experience all this, we have to call on him. Our Father in heaven. We remind ourselves that while God is everywhere, there is a place where he dwells called heaven. And that is our ultimate home. He is in heaven and that is where we long to be with him. But although he's in heaven, he's not too far to hear. And hallowed. Hallowed. This is not a word we use much anymore, if at all. Uh, But hallowed means made holy. And the word holy means set apart or separated. It's something elevated and revered as special. It's different. It's unlike anything else. has no comparison. The ESV footnote explains the meaning of uh, hallowed be your name as let your name be kept holy or let your name be treated with reverence. Lord, let your name be revered. Let your name be honored. Let the lips of those who curse your name be silent and may the hearts be turned to bless your name instead. Hallowed be your name. And now we come to the name. Hallowed be your name. This is a prayer that God's name would be honored in my heart, in the hearts of my children, in this church, in Alexandria, in Pineville, in our nation, in our world, in Uganda, in Mexico, in Ukraine, in Russia, in China, in Iran. May the name of God be held most dear and precious in all these lands. And what is God's name? He's told us his name. God's name as revealed to his people, as recorded in his word for us, is Yahweh, which means I am. 
a name that communicates the timeless, eternal existence of a God who is the source of all things. As I was preparing for this sermon, I had in my mind that the name Yahweh was first revealed to Moses because that stuck out in my mind as when God revealed it. But there are actually plenty of references of people calling on the name of Yahweh prior to Moses. But it appears that the people of Israel had forgotten God's name during their captivity in Egypt and had to be reminded. But in the New Testament, we learn the the names of the three persons of the triune God, Yahweh. God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. Our God is both one and three, one God in three persons. God the Father is Yahweh. God the Son, Jesus, is Yahweh. And that's why the Pharisees wanted to stone him. God the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. And Yahweh is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we say, let the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit receive praise from the lips of all people of the earth. Amen. Now the second request in the Lord's Prayer is in Matthew 6.10, which starts, Your kingdom come. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is another major emphasis of Jesus' teachings. Um, And it's closely linked to the gospel itself as we see in Matthew 4.23. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So praying for God's kingdom to come is, among other things, praying for all the effects and benefits of the gospel to be felt increasingly here on earth. We're saying, let the gospel do its work. Give grace that unbelievers may believe, that those who believe may increasingly live as citizens of heaven. In teaching about the kingdom, Jesus continually subverted the expectations that the Jews had of his day about the kingdom. Um, And there's a series of short passages we'll look at here in Luke 17, 20 to 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In John 3, 5 and 6, Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Only Spirit will enter the kingdom of God. John eighteen thirty six. I believe this is Jesus answering either the Sanhedrin or Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And one more, and this is a fast forward, uh, Revelation eleven fifteen. This is a fast forward to the full, complete, final coming of the kingdom. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so the kingdom of God is already among us, 
and is still coming and has yet to fully come. God's kingdom coming means souls moving from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. And it means all affairs in this world eventually coming under the authority of King Jesus. And the end of, all, end of it all, it will be as the 24 elders, a little bit later in that passage in Revelation, proclaimed. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And the third request, the second half of Matthew 6.10, is your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I used to think, um, probably as recently as three or four years ago, I used to think of this in a kind of an abstract way. Um, your will be done. Kind of let things happen the way you want them to, God. Kind of generically. Uh, or I might have thought about it in terms of something beyond uh, any human's control. Something like, Lord, if it's your will, let me win the, win the lottery, or which I don't play lottery. Um, <clears throat> or if such and such happened, it must have been the Lord's will. Uh, but remember, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsem- Gethsemane facing the cross, and he prayed, not as I will, but as you will. He was submitting his will to the Father and choosing to act according to the Father's will. So this was a pledge of obedience to his Father. So praying for God's will to be done is praying not for random events to go the right way. It's praying for the people of God to do the will of God. Let your will be done. And it's on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? It's done in heaven by the perfect obedience of the angels. So let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is saying, let God's children on earth, let us become as obedient to God as the angels in heaven. The fourth request, Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread. This is a request of God for necessities of daily living and an expression of dependence upon God for everything we need. It's an acknowledgement that God is the source of all that comes into our possession. And this prayer refutes the notion that we can build wealth with no help from anyone. For it is God who gives us the abilities and the energy to do it. And he works in all kinds of complex circumstances that we can't even see. And he keeps us from misfortunes that are out of our control. Our power and control are illusions anyway. And sometimes the illusion is painfully peeled back when some kind of misfortune strikes us this prayer is a reminder to us to orient our attention to god as the supplier of all we have and all we need and this prayer refutes greed and selfishness which come at least partly out of fear that god may not be good enough or powerful enough to provide what we need all the time and this kind of dependence on god for what's necessary to live without craving for excess is reflected in proverbs 30 verses 7 to 9 where the writer says to God, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty 
nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. But there are things that make me think that our daily bread in this prayer is not only about our physical needs. Uh, Jesus peppered his teachings with mentions of spiritual food as more important than physical food. First, just a little farther on in Matthew, still in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasized not worrying about physical food. In Matthew six thirty-one to 34, he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Next, uh, we'll look at a a little passage where the people came back to Jesus after a crowd of 5,000 of them were fed until their bellies were full from just five loaves of bread and two fish. They were asking for more miracles and more food, referencing when their fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And then in John six thirty-two to 35, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always, which is kind of an ironic um, bad reflection of what jesus said this give us this day our daily bread and jesus said to them i am the bread of life and there's several other examples of jesus teaching something about spiritual food while the disciples misunderstood him as speaking of spiritual of of physical food in john chapter 4 meanwhile the disciples were urging him saying rabbi eat but he said to them i have food to eat that you know you do not know about so the disciples said to one another Has someone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And he's using what is an excellent teaching device, by the way, where you intentionally use a word or phrase in an unexpected way, and it takes time for the learners to catch the real meaning, and it makes a stronger impression. And then there's this passage in Deuteronomy which Jesus quotes in Matthew 4 when he answered the devil during his temptation in the wilderness. And this ties in with the crowd's misunderstanding about the manna from heaven. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then there is a warning in the book of Amos of a time when the word of God would be rare. In Amos 8:11, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And then the last couple of references on this um, fourth request Um, these passages in the new testament refer to our need to crave the word of god like we crave food 
and to grow in our maturity and ability to consume and use more difficult kinds of spiritual food. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That's the word. That by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then I fed you with milk. Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are still not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. So when I pray, give us this day our daily bread, I pray for my daily physical needs and express reliance upon God for those. But when I pray, I'm praying also to stay spiritually alive and strong and to grow spiritually. Lord, please keep us from growing spiritually weak and sick. Feed us, Lord. We need the word of God to feed our souls and to keep our spirits strong as much as we need physical food to keep our bodies strong. We come to the fifth request in Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And some might wonder why we need to ask for forgiveness from God for our sins each day because aren't all our sins forgiven when we first come to him in faith and we're justified? We're fully justified. He sees us as righteous. All our sins are forgiven. Why? But this uh, request is not about justification, which is that once-for-all declaration of righteousness based on Christ's perfect righteousness, but about sanctification, living more righteously, being cleansed from particular sins and failures as we go through life in this world. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, explains this by way of the interaction between Jesus and Peter as Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples during the Last Supper in John 13. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. It was a, a subversion of the normal order that Jesus would take on the role of a servant here. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him something peculiar. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. The feet are in contact with the earth and get dirty. This is our life on earth, still having sin in our flesh, interacting with the world. But the body already washed by the water of the Spirit remains clean. This is our spirit before the Lord, fully righteous and justified. But we still get dirty enough to need our feet washed. And now this last phrase in this petition, as we also have forgiven our debtors, is the only part of the prayer that Jesus elaborates on after he concludes the prayer, and we're going to get to that one in a moment. In the sixth request, Matthew six thirteen, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this, um, some have wondered over the years whether this is two separate uh, requests. Uh, the Westminster Confession treats this as one request. And these are paired opposites. Lord, please don't do this one thing, but do this other thing instead. So being led into temptation is put as the opposite of being delivered from evil. Being delivered from evil has to do with being delivered from temptation to sin. This is a prayer for victory over sin. We need to remember that Satan still wants to kill, steal, and destroy and do as much damage in our lives as he can, and he keeps trying to draw us into sin to do as much damage as he can. 
Notice that this is the prayer of a Christian whose sins have already been forgiven, yet there's an emphasis here on continuing to struggle for practical victory over sin. It's bringing the completed work of Christ on the cross for our sins into the practical day-to-day life for practical victory daily over sin. When I think about victory over temptation, I also think about Hebrews twelve fourteen, which says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and neither have I. Sometimes the struggle against sin, if we don't just give in, can be very difficult and painful, but we have to keep pressing on toward victory through Christ, struggling by the grace of God toward victory and not giving in to defeat. And then what serves a little bit as an epilogue to this prayer is this commentary Jesus gives in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, This is a warning and a bit of a hard word. There are other parables that also delve into this idea, the parable of the unforgiving servant or unmerciful servant, and Matthew 18 is one. But this is a warning that we're expected to be as forgiving of others as we hope for God to be forgiving of us. Indeed, as it's stated here, it's stated as a condition here by Jesus. If you forgive, you'll be forgiven. But if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. So it is serious business. And one of the implications of this is that if we're being unforgiving of others there's a good chance that we haven't really come to grips with our own sin if we think our sins are okay to be forgiven by God but that person's sins aren't forgivable by us then we somehow think that the other person's sins against us are worse than our own sins against God we have not yet come to grips with the depth of our own sin with how far our hearts really are from God, with how utterly hopeless we ourselves are without God's pure grace and forgiveness. Not forgiving others means we don't understand how much there is in us that needs to be forgiven or has been forgiven. It's the knowledge of how how bad our hearts are that makes God's grace become wonderful to us. It can't be wonderful if we don't know how deeply sin has blackened our hearts. But once we know that and really begin to grasp how great God's grace is to us, then we begin to love God and his grace much more. As Jesus said, he who is forgiven much loves much. The implication being he who hasn't been forgiven much because he doesn't know what needs to be forgiven, because maybe he hasn't really been convicted of sin, That person doesn't show evidence of that deep love for God because he hasn't felt it yet. Because there's nothing to feel yet. That person hasn't yet really experienced God's love yet in that way, but he needs to. In this passage in Luke 7, which is the conclusion of uh, a time in the house of Simon, turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. 
Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. I love the Lord's Prayer because it teaches us all we need to know about how to pray. We can use it both as a prayer all on its own and as a springboard for all our prayers. And it relentlessly reminds us of the gospel and keeps turning our attention to God in a gospel-shaped way. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we, your people, look to you because you are a good, good Father. We long to see your kingdom come by seeing those who are living without hope to find in your gospel the true hope that never disappoints. And we long to see in this world, see this world come fully and finally under the lordship of your son, Jesus Christ, who deserves it all. And Lord, we ask you to mature the body of Christ, us, your body, so that we can more faithfully and fully do your will on earth. Let your people more fully and faithfully reflect your goodness, your character, and your truth, Lord God. Lord, we look to you for all we need today, knowing that you are faithful and able to provide what we need for today. We ask you to sustain not only our bodies, but our spirits with life. Thank you, Lord, for real food for us today in your word and in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, your body and blood for us. And Lord, we ask you to bring our sins to our awareness each day by your Spirit and to forgive our sins as we confess to you and to one another and as we extend to others forgiveness just as you have for us. And Lord, please give us victory over sin. Help us to grow in grace in each situation where we're tempted to see the way of escape. Where we're tempted to see the way of escape and deliver us from the evil one who still longs to ruin our lives and our marriages and to steal the hearts of our children and to kill all he can. We pray for all this in the name of Jesus who has all power and authority and to whom belongs the kingdom. Amen.